In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm noah nelson and welcome to episode 398 this week on the show no pro chicago curator and remote editor patrick mclean jumps into the host chair to interview post curious founder reader orloff and writer lauren bellow about their collaboration on threads of fate a newly revised version of post curious's very first game the tale of ord that is up for pre-sales right now and hint at some further collaboration down the line But before we get there, the 4th of July holiday means it's been a light week on the site, but that didn't stop us. Oh, no. Didn't keep us from putting out a big op-ed this week. Transformational experiences are the new buzzword, but are you making change or just selling it? That's by yours truly, and it's the first piece spinning out of our Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser coverage. More on that after this week's main interview. That Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser coverage is brought to you by Agile Lens, bringing XR and theater together for over a decade, and After Hours Theater Company, producers of the Los Angeles Immersive Invitational, with additional support from listeners like you. Which brings me to thanking our latest backer, TEG, who has jumped in at the $5 a month level. Look, there are some amazing opportunities coming up on the horizon, and right now the support of this community is helping me wade through to them. I'm fired up from the last month and ready to take our efforts to the next stage, but we can't do it without you. Each $5 a month pledge gets us one step closer to where we need to be. Hitting up patreon.com slash not only powers the podcast and websites for NoPro and everything immersive, it also gets you into our member-only Discord. You'll find a whole community of creators and fans there, as well as regular real-time chats. We've got some AMAs and book club action coming up later this season. Summer season. The summer season. More soon. If you're already a backer, don't forget to link your Patreon account to Discord and drop a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and share the articles you find useful on your social media platform of choice. It helps immensely. We are always no proscenium, (laughs) except on Insta and now on threads, which everyone in the United States joined this week, where we are no underscore proscenium. Also, I keep on trying to find who else has no proscenium. I can't see them. I don't know. I, I maybe it's us and, and I, it's, it's so wild. It's so wild. Anyway, as always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mustry, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Daryl, John Boulette, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentis, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Kurt Collins, Hale, the visionary, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Lecker the Cool, the Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. And you know what? We're always on the lookout for community partners who are up for working out special deals for our backers or for sponsoring what we do. Hit me up at noah at noproscenium.com for details. It's all about keeping us going. And keep just keep your ears peeled. Just keep your ears peeled. All right. With that, 
Let's get into this week's show as I hand over the controls to Patrick. Hi, everyone. This is Patrick McLean, no pros, a longtime curator, and most recently, it's remote editor, the latter title having me cover everything from VR content, Zoom shows, and at-home boxed experiences. And it's the last medium that brings me onto the podcast today, because at this point, if you're a creator or a fan of immersive entertainment, you've most likely encountered an at-home box experience at the very least having seen them on the shelves at, the na- at your nearest major retail store. But during the height of the pandemic, as No Pro began covering more and more at-home boxes, one company in particular caught our attention. With specializing in creating tabletop puzzle games since 2018, PostCurious has constantly been experimenting with not only what kind of stories are told in the medium, but how they are told throughout exploration and problem solving. I'm thrilled to be talking with two of the creatives involved with the company today, who I told Noah I had to talk to after finishing Post Curious's latest game, Threads of Fate, which is available right now for pre-order at getpostcurious.com. As Post Curious's founder and primary game designer, Rita Orlov has a background in escape rooms, illustration, and object design. Rita, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks so much for having me here. Absolutely. Also with me today is Threads of Fate's writer, Lauren Bello. Lauren Bello is a Nebula-nominated television writer best known for her work on Apple TV's Foundation and Netflix's The Sandman. She has been a longtime avid puzzle enthusiast. Lauren, it is a pleasure to have you here today. Happy to be here. Also, as a note of full disclosure, Lauren has worked as a no proceeding correspondent from 2017 to 2019, covering the Los Angeles scene, along with several telephone experiences. And now with those legalese out of the way, because there's someone who was getting that pencil ready to sharpen it and write in, uh, I would love to first dive in and talk about a little bit about Post Curious's origins, because as I teased there in the intro, you've actually been creating box home experiences from 2018. So I think it would be really helpful for the audience just to learn a little bit about the company, how you came to design uh, and start the, your very first game, The Tale of Ward, which ultimately is going to play a very important part in this conversation. Absolutely. Um, so although our, the first game, as you said, the Tale of Ward came out in 2018, I started designing it in 2016. So before that, I worked in an escape room for a couple of years, and that is what got me into this genre in the first place. Um, I worked at the first, uh, second escape room that opened in the U.S., and it kind of blew my mind a little bit because I'd been a fan of point-and-click adventure games for so long and suddenly I see this Craigslist listing for an assistant wow. game master at an escape room and I thought wait what do you mean a real life escape room because this just wasn't a thing that existed here at the time um, 
And as I spent a lot more time there and watched people play games, started designing some puzzles for new games that we were building, um, eventually I realized that this was kind of the thing I wanted to do with my life. Uh, but as I exited my role there, I wanted to continue designing games, but I didn't really have the resources or necessarily the desire to open my own escape room, especially living in New York City, where real estate is, you know, beyond unbelievable when it comes to especially making something that you actually need a lot of space for. Um, so I thought kind of what could I do to keep creating things, but do it on my own time. Um, and at the time I had played a couple of uh, at-home games, which some were really very, could, hard to even call a game, I guess, in a way. They were really a narrative experience. Um, and then there were some uh, escape room style games just first starting out on the market. Um, but they didn't feel to me like they had very much of a story to them. And I wanted to make something that kind of had enough puzzle and enough story to that kind of combined together and made a whole experience that was challenging for someone, but also not as challenging so as so that you can't actually finish it, um, which is also where the hint system comes into play. and. I know we'll talk about that later, um, but that's how the Tale of Ord was born. So that was my first game, and it was also very, um, I guess it was ARG inspired to an extent as well, because it features some online components and kind of trying to blur like the fiction of, of the game with elements that exist in real life. And it was a very challenging, but meant to be immersive sort of foray into this tabletop board game world, which was really, or sorry, I mean, tabletop puzzle game world, which was really just blossoming at the time. Well, I would love to take it back just a second, because now I'm curious to know, as, as you having done and run escape rooms, were you the kind of game master who was wanted to ensure that they, um, that the players were able to escape? Were you like giving those like subtle hints, maybe not necessarily when they asked for it? Because I think that's kind of a very interesting thing when I do escape rooms of late, I always appreciate that the collaboration element to it. I feel like sometimes people, and there's a, a, a misconception somewhat fairly, somewhat not unfairly in regards to that. Oh no, they want you to like the company, the room they want you to fail. They don't want you to get through. And I, I feel like, Finally, there's this kind of fog of war clearing where that isn't the case anymore, that we, we really want to do it. So I feel like, one, were you one of those people who were giving people help? I, I get that sense that you probably were maybe a bit helpful. But then also, what was your kind of like big takeaway in the observation in regards to that? Like, Because you're watching people play constantly hour after hour and things like that did you like learn anything or pick up anything fascinating in regards to how people solve puzzles i'm just curious with that perspective what that might be if anything yeah i mean i think how i would give hints in an ideal situation might not necessarily be how 
it happened in like 2013. <laughs> um, but I think for a while, we, the way that the company had it was that we were supposed to wait for them, for the group to ask for a hint. Um, and at some point that changed and the game masters had control over where they gave people hints. Um, but I would usually, like, I think failure is okay, but I wouldn't, but the important part is that people are having fun, right? So uh -huh. if people aren't having fun and five minutes go by, then it's definitely time to help them along in some way. Um, if, if they're still moving and they're still solving stuff and maybe they don't get out by the end, I don't think that that's the worst thing that can happen. But if they don't get out because they're sitting around and they're frustrated, then obviously that's not what we want in a game. Um, but I don't also don't think it's like absolutely necessary to push people so hard to the point where you're just giving them the answer because you want them to make sure uh, to make sure that they get out uh, because I want to be enabling somebody to actually solve something rather than just telling them what it is. Unless, of course, the game itself is so frustrating that they just need the answer. And that's a whole different slew of, of problems. But, you know, hopefully not what we're encountering most of the time. Yeah, I, I think that's a really great observation in regards to the player interaction and what they're doing and how they're feeling about it right being able to understand that yeah people can be stuck on a puzzle but it can be enjoying it can be a really engaging time i feel like there's times where like you know when you're puzzling over something and you're trying to solve it and you bring in that collaboration and sure there's a lot of people you might be crowded but if you're making progression and i think that's the key word to what you're talking about is then it doesn't matter ultimately if you win or lose, if you felt like you've accomplished something, if you've done all of that. So I think that's really fascinating. So I think the question then is how, how did you for that very first experience apply all of this knowledge? Like, so you, you, uh, you transition into trying to create your own experience over two years, this first one called the tale of Ord and I have to ask is give me a little summary of it. Like, I don't know what it is, uh, but <laughs> what, what came kind of first in regards to it? Was it the desire to create puzzles that people could kind of do anywhere, or everywhere, or the narrative element in the story of it? I would be fascinated to learn. Cause I think this is something that is kind of very tricky in the medium is what comes first. Is it form or function? Yeah, at the time, I think I was still trying to figure out what the form of such a thing could be. And I was I took a little bit of inspiration from some subscription games that were out there at the time, but there just wasn't a game that felt like it was a full experience to me, both in terms of narrative and gameplay. Uh, so my goal was really just to create something that combined both of those things more equally. Um, and I'm probably lean a little bit more in terms of like, I'm a puzzle person and a puzzle designer. So in some ways the puzzles came first, but um, I kind of started by fig trying to figure out what was the theme or the premise that I wanted to, to go with. And at the time I hadn't seen any other games that were based on Norse mythology. And I just thought that would be a really fun uh, 
thing to explore in terms of both narrative and puzzle content. Uh, so everything kind of ended up stemming from me just doing a whole bunch of research into like uh, different gods and the characters that appear in Norse mythology, looking at like rune stones and different inscriptions and languages that, that uh, were found and these old illuminated manuscript books and everything. Um, and I mean, the rest of it is kind of a blur because <laughs> I, I have the, I know the starting point and I know the ending point, but in the middle, it was just like all of these ideas that happened and somehow they kind of came together into an experience which was meant to be delivered in like four sections. But I think uh, the the things that do better as a subscription is usually things that feel kind of stand alone. Like you're still getting a full kind of, I guess, story in a box. And ultimately I decided to package it all into one box. And truthfully, this was practical as well because nobody wants to pay to ship four boxes when you could ship it in one. Um, except for people who really, really like receiving it in separate increments. But ultimately, it's one game and it's one story. So it kind of made sense to package it all together. I feel like I kind of went on a tangent. Apologies. No, no, not at all. It's <laughs> not I, where the question started. <laughs> it's not where the question started, sure. But I think we covered some interesting ground because I feel like even in its short existence of the at-home box experience and how it gets delivered and sent to people is rapidly and constantly changing. I think, you know, we talk about ta uh, Tale of Ward in its 2018 and we're only, you know, roughly five, five, six years kind of from there, more or less. But to that point now, I feel like, yes, there was this height of people wanted to like, sparse out the experience to a to elongate it in a good sense of that word not not in a bad way of like getting something every month and kind of exploring it similar to like a kind of a tv show a appointment tv show where you have to be there and like experience at the same time to avoid it but i feel of late now and we're already full circle where you initially were practically like i i can't we, no one can afford to deal with the postage of four different things that just ship at once where now people I think are very happy to get it all at once, but then experience it at their own pace. And I think, um, I think that's, and even really at the time I had people emailing me being like, Hey, I just finished this one. Can you just send me the next one now? Do I need to wait until next month? And I was like, well, I guess I can. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Because you asked, but it, it happened enough that I was like, I don't know why I'm sending this out separately anymore. That's fascinating. Well, because Lauren, you um, ultimately had done uh, that uh, that experience, the Tale of Ward, and you did it as one. Did you feel like it was a boon to just get the whole box and have it uh, as one rather than parsed out? Definitely. I can, I can understand from a narrative perspective why it might feel ex extra compelling and like you're on the receiving end of an adventure to receive it one by one. Um, but from a narrative tracking standpoint, it was a lot easier just not to have to pause and just to be able to barrel through. Yeah. And I, I think in, especially there are other, um, 
creators and companies that utilize the at-home box experience. And I feel like sometimes when the cast of characters is so large, um, you a month goes by and you kind of forget, like, who is this person? What is their seemingly their motivation? Why are they a suspect? Like kind of what I'm doing, you lose that where, you know, some players are able to keep track of that better. Some aren't, but you know, either way, when you have it, you can go at your own pace. You, you could, if you want, sit on it for a month uh, and still have that same experience. But I, I would love to learn because that was your tale of war was your first experience. And it sounds like it was, uh, you were learning a lot, uh, even when getting it out the door, literally into people's hands, it was Absolutely. never, yeah, never a new thing. But I feel like in some of the games that came to pass, uh, you began to really read an experiment with the contents of the box, how, how everything's packaged and how it needs to be used. Because a, a big thing that occurred during the you know, the pandemic, the no pro staff began to cover a lot more at home box experiences. So my first initial engagement with a post curious experience was the light in the mist. And I think this was a really eye opening experience for me, because at that point we were still in the height of the pandemic. I would say it was kind of in the earlier wind down phase. But at that point, we had done many boxes where someone on staff gets it in the mail, they open it up, it's full of loose paper and trinkets, and some of them occasionally require heavy usage or simply mild usage to plug in answers online via the internet, via device, your tablet, your computers, whatever it may be. But then you reached out to us and we did the light in the mist. And what happened is I received, essentially, I felt like the world's smallest box because what this is, is that this is labeled as a tarot puzzle experience and you open it up and essentially seemingly at first glance, if you're not being mindful or being observant, it's just a tarot deck, a fully functional tarot deck. But then as you peel away and you begin to read through the booklet that comes with it, you players learn that this is a rather special magical pun intended deck in regards to what it can do. And I would love to, I set you up for a very difficult question to explain how from, you know, after you released tale of Ward, how you got to an experience that really played with the medium that really kind of looked at and goes, can I have an at home box experience that is more practical in design that does not, typically require the same components because you've you've done this with several of your pieces and we'd love to learn more about that yeah i think uh the a very important evolution point in between those two is also the emerald flame um which is more similar to the tale of ward in some ways and that it is also uh envelopes that are sequenced into chapters it also comes with papers and trinkets and it is uh, a similarly narrative experience, but has um, on some online components as well, but they're not nearly as robust as they are in Threads of Fate. So in the Emerald Flame, there's a lot less uh, internet involved, and it's really more for entering your solutions and progressing the story. And 
from there, we moved into a light in the mist, which doesn't require the internet at all, unless you want to access hints. And it doesn't have any of those physical objects besides for the tarot deck and a booklet and a place to record your answers. And so the trending is sort of toward more analog and more resettable as well, because the Emerald Flame um, contains some components that need to be destroyed during the game as well. So it comes with a refill kit, uh, which Threads of Fate now does as well, because there are certain elements that you have to write on or cut or fold or, you know, set on fire. Not, <laughs> maybe. Carefully. <laughs> I don't, know. If, you I don't got, know. if you have to do it, just be mindful of when and where and how. That's, That's all we true. ask. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, people... Some people are very averse to the idea of altering the components in their game. And so although I think it can be cool and fun and could add something to uh, give yourself that ability to interact uh, with things differently than just by looking at them, because I think you have a much more tactile experience when you are cutting and folding and maybe but very carefully setting on fire. Um, with Light in the Mist, you have a place to record your answers, which you could use that uh, if you really want to preserve it. There's two of them. You could write on it with a pencil and then erase it. Uh, but definitely uh, we wanted it to be an experience that exists in its own little world that isn't really on the internet, which the Emerald Flame also kind of uses some real world elements in a similar way to Tale of Ward. So it kind of, it makes sense for it to exist online as well, because the characters and the places exist in the real world. Um, and although the story in The Light in the Mist does have places that exist in, in the world, I think the story is much more self-contained and it's much more character driven uh, than sort of mission driven, I guess you could say. Um, and it also evolved in kind of a weird way because originally we wanted it to be uh, almost more like a choose-your-own-adventure in the sense that um, the story was kind of being told about you and that you were almost like telling your fate using the cards when you were solving the puzzles, but that just totally didn't work. So we did two playtests and... The player said, I love the puzzles. This isn't really a story. It doesn't do anything for me. <laughs> and like, what if you actually made it a narrative? And we were like, yeah, that is what we need to do. Um, so that game I worked on with Jack Fallows, who uh, created Cryptogram Puzzle Post, which is also a narrative puzzle illustration experience uh, that does come in uh, these small issues that were released periodically. And so we wrote this story together. Um, and it ended up becoming a much more sort of intimate storytelling experience than we maybe originally envisioned. But I think that is also kind of an interesting experiment in the space just because you don't really see that as often. Uh, and it's also been interesting getting feedback from people about it because it's so personal oh. that either people really relate to it and they love the story and the characters 
and they really like you know they're like i want to know what happened to sam or they're just kind of like ah it was fine (laughs) and they just like it doesn't you know which i totally get like it's not it's not for everybody not everyone's gonna love every story um and it's a coming of age story so i can understand if it's like a you love it or you just kind of feel meh about it um I do think it's interesting with that story is that how, because you in the instructions, it's conveyed to randomly draw cards, to shuffle and randomly draw, to let fate uh, take over and guide you through which you do it. And ultimately, each time you solve a puzzle, you're directed to a specific section within the I'm going to say solution booklet where the narrative is where you learn things, but it's out of order, right? Because if you kind of, I'm not even sure if you do it in order, you would get the story from a to B all the way to Z. Okay. Yeah. So you get these snippets of a life of, of what's happening, what Sam's going through and the journey they're on. And it's, I was intrigued. I was very intrigued because you get the snippets of someone's life and there's this constant feel of, I think, struggle and especially of that time period of adolescence where everything is so unsure, both internally and externally. And that at least resonated with me. But I, I think that I think that's what kind of like, in the, you know, for the immersive, the live performance immersive community, I think what the light in the mist does so well is kind of capture that sandbox experience. When you go to the McKittrick and you are running around and you're in a, in the, in the area and you can follow whatever path you want, like what intrigues you? What are you feeling? Maybe you draw a card and you're like, no, thank you. Uh, that's not imagery I want to deal with today. And you follow the thread elsewhere. I, I would love to backtrack really quick in regards to this interesting component that you you're putting more and more into all of your boxed experiences, the post curious experiences. And that is the refill kit. And we see other companies are doing this as well in the space, but I have to ask kind of a cheeky question here in the late stage capitalism society that we live in. Why, why do that? Because then, uh, you know, someone's not recommending a sale to you why 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 go above and beyond for the customer i'm saying all this with a smile so i hope for the listener yeah, yeah. not get that i'm well, trying to be cheeky i mean first of all i hate being wasteful so i totally understand like you know if you're spending like 70 dollars on an experience and even if it's the greatest experience you've ever had in your life like you don't want to throw it away afterwards so I feel like it's a nice thing to either be able to at least kind of preserve it in its original state or to be able to pass it on to somebody else. And if that means you're, you know, selling it uh, secondhand, that's totally fine because at least it's like somebody else is going to get to experience it before it ends up in a waste bin. Um, But I'm actually trying to trend toward not having refill kits because I'm trying to trend toward not having the necessity for it. Um, So like I said, with Light in the Mist, you kind of have the ability to repackage it. You don't really need to destroy anything in the game. Um, And the game that followed it 
is called a drift. We didn't have a Kickstarter for that, but it is actually fully resettable. So you don't need to write on oh. the components. You just have to put everything back where it was. And I think it both kind of makes people feel a little bit better about paying for a premium experience because they know that like, well, even like they'll get their money's worth from playing it, but they also have the ability to like, it has a life beyond the time that it took for them to play it. Um, but I also like making my customers happy. So <laughs> when people sure. ask for refill kits, I, I try to listen. Yeah. But I, I think, I think that's uh, of course a pro- the problem with this is our culture, our American culture at large is, um, the very, I think sometimes occasionally, and we're all guilty of it. I'm very much guilty of it. I have to, I had to go back into the office yesterday and I forgot to bring the use my reusable coffee mug. And so I, I, I filled up with coffee the first day and I was all intentional to reuse that cup. I will do it. I will reuse my coffee cup. And then through circumstance and all that, like I, I didn't do it. And I just grabbed another reusable paper cup and I think, you know, the importance of sustainability, but in every meaning of that word is very important because I feel like, you know, we need to be very mindful of that. And it sounds like that's a kind of important goal for Post Curious is to be aware of the space and your input in regards to the manufacturing of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a game that you're probably only going to play once. So there's always the question of what happens to it afterwards. And I mean, my goal is also to make games that are pretty enough that people just want to keep them and to create, you know, give people experiences so that they want to kind of have that memory on their shelf, you know, because I only keep games if I know I'm going to play them again or if I really liked it enough that I just want to hold on to it. So ideally, it's going to be a game that you want to hold on to it. But if you don't want to hold on to it, then at least you have the ability to give it to somebody else. And it's not, you know, it's not just going to sit there and like be wasted cardboard or, you know, other components. Oh, absolutely. And I so I think, you know, in regards to that, I think that's a great way to transition into the threads of fate because of I feel like in regards to talking with you both today in learning about like how that box is packed packaged and functions in regards to it because it's it's even like the envelopes are laid in there in the order to do them and things like that like there's such intentionality in regards to the player's experience in the story even before it uh, you open the box, how it begins and things like that. And I know Lauren, you were heavily involved in threads of fate and doing it because as we've kind of talked about this entire podcast, it's an adaptation a retelling a, a little bit of column a, a little bit of column B of the tale of Ord. So I would love to learn from you, Lauren, how you uh, first, uh, you know, first connected with post curious and Rita, but then how you ch- tackled that challenge how to how to update and you know weave new elements into the narrative and the experience 
Yeah. So part one of the question, how uh, I came to play it, which was I, I had been trying to play this game for years. <laughs> I, I, I had missed out on the initial printing and everywhere I went, it kind of felt like everyone was re- referencing it as if they had played it. And I was like, how? I would play like the Great Gotham Challenge, say, anyone have any recommendations? And everyone would be like, oh, yeah, obviously Rita's game. And I'd be like, but how do I? And I would, I signed up for, there were these spreadsheets that were going around online where it's like, if one of us gets a copy, we'll promise to, to play it and send it on to the next person. And so I like typed my address into multiple spreadsheets, hoping that eventually one day would like find a copy, find its way to me. I also like stalk people's social medias. And if I realized that they had played it, I would reach out and say like, hey, do you still have it? Can I play it? And I had run into so many dead ends. And then Rita reached out and was like, would you be interested in getting potentially involved in a rewrite? And I was like, does this mean I get to finally play it? Yes. (laughs) Um, So she sent me a copy and I played it and it was amazing. Uh, And I started putting together a notes document of what a new version could look like. And she had flagged some things for me specifically. Like one of the things she had flagged was, I know that it doesn't all diegetically add up yet logically. Why, you know, so the first thing I wanted to do is to track, okay, so who is making these codes? Who are they thinking that they are hiding this information from? Who are they wanting to find it? Like, who is this for? So there was like a, a pass where I just focused on that, like who has what information, why are they hiding it from someone, what would be the purpose of encoding it as opposed to doing anything else with it. Um, then another logic pass that looked at some larger questions, like if this is an ancient story, an ancient narrative, how can some of these puzzles rely on present day artifacts Uh, And what are some workarounds that we could use to make sure it makes sense that like that something that was created long ago and that is very ancient makes reference to things in the present day. Um, The third thing I wanted to think about was balance. It's a I don't I'm not going to say anything too spoilery, but it is a choice based game. There are two sides and two perspectives and two characters. Um, And you're obviously spending a lot more time with one character than the other. Um, And so that person is uh, getting a very compelling story and getting a chance to make their case and the other person less so. So I wanted to think about some creative ways to balance it out so that the the choice at the end felt 50-50, like you could go one way or the other and make it a really tough choice for people. Um, So some of that was about recalibrating motivations. Um, Some of that was about asking different questions, like making the character, making the player ask, like, not, is this person a reliable narrator, but instead, like, do I actually philosophically agree with this person or is this person making good choices? Um, And and it's safe to to say that a a majority of the characters in Threads of Fate aren't and i think that's kind of a very fascinating thing because i think in regards to other box experiences i've done it, it you know there's occasionally some twists and turns on who you can trust but ultimately it's you are heading towards a specific ending and there becomes ultimately very clear cut 
right, wrong, crime, you know, a crime occurred, this was good, this was bad, like very kind of even biblical sense of this. And I definitely say as a player of Threads of Fate, that really took me for a shock because I think to all this, what you're talking about, Lauren, occurs like very subtly in regards to halfway through, like I, I had some major questions in regards to, yes, this seemingly started off very simply as just you were hired to find a missing professor for this university by the head of the dean, but ultimately, very quickly, the whole slew of cast of characters, there's, there's a lot of questions in regards to them and what's important to them. And I think I would love to dig in a little bit more and learn about how you mined out those motivations and where you found them, you know, in regards to that. And yeah, I think that would be really cool to learn. Yeah, I think, well, I think the seeds of that were there in the first iteration, the idea that these are two people who are afraid of loss. Um, But I wanted to take that maybe a little step further and say, they're dealing with loss and grief in exactly opposite ways. Um, And I don't know, like, is one healthier than the other? Is one really, the challenge for me was building, building both sides so that you could feel satisfied completing one story or completing the other story, completing, siding with one worldview or the other without well, having just the right amount of, mm, but what would have happened if I'd chosen the other side? You have to satisfy the player with, while also making them feel like the other option would have been a viable option. And so that was something we went through a couple of iterations of just to make sure you didn't feel let down. You felt like you got to play out the version that you wanted, but also like the other version could have been viable yet not tormented, not, not have that feeling like when you leave an escape room and you're like, wait, there was another ending and you're not telling me what it is. And like, you know, pulling your hair out either, (laughs) trying to strike just the right balance. Um, But yeah, for me, it was a story about grief and loss and struggling to feel like you have control over your environment and questioning whether or not that kind of control ever really can exist or what would have to be sacrificed in this world in order for it to, it, it to exist. Um, and I don't think there are any easy answers. <laughs> um, but like the question of like, what would a world with free will look like was something that I definitely, I remember like adding like all these annotations to the document for Rita to, um, to read and like all these comments and saying like, not that I'm ever going to get into this, but here's what I think would look like, you know, here's what would have to happen. And well, here's what would unravel if the world actually had free will. And like, do we want that? Can I even wrap my mind around it? <laughs> so, well, and I think that's really kind of a fascinating element of this experience because in threads of fate you you walk away yes knowing that there was another ending i'm doing air quotes um and there's it's a conflict like it's it's a it's essentially a rorschach test in that like in regards to like it's what you know what you put into the experience what you value as a player 
beyond just simply the challenge of solving puzzles or solving mysteries. It's, it's, it's the mystery of the universe and life in regards to what do you hold dear? Like, and I think that's kind of fascinating that because it sounds like it was from the beginning and it has been, I know in tale of or that it was present that like this ultimate, like kind of like choice a choice B and all of that is, but then how, how you both together collaborated and really heightened that choice. And I think that's what is really kind of fascinating about the box is how you, as you literally go further into it, the deeper of an experience occurs. And yeah. I'm just curious in regards to, yeah, in regards to that, like the thinking and thoughts behind that. Yeah, I had, so when I was turning in, things into Rita for review, I had these little paragraphs that I called player journey. And I used that to track like, okay, so after they've read this, what will they be thinking? What will they be feeling? What childhood stories could be evoked for them that would make them think that they're, it's going to play out in one way or the other. Um, and so, yeah, I think a big part of that was tracking player journey at every step of the way, predicting if they're not paying close attention, how they might respond to things. And, oh, if they are really paying close attention, how are they might respond to things? Um, I, this isn't going to be very helpful at all. I, I experience <laughs> stories as shapes. And so like uh, in a, on a more ab abstracted level, it was about finding the shape and energy flow through those player journey paragraphs that would lead to a feeling of catharsis at the end, no matter which way you had gone. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. And it's, I don't think that's, I don't think that sounds weird because it's literally you're playing with shapes, you're playing with objects and there, uh, and, and there are a lot of very unique and tactile elements here. And Rita, I would love to learn in regards to this feedback. I know it was a, a similar experience. You, you do caution players who did play the tale of war that this is, is similar. It is different. You've made changes and updates, but practically in regards to that, how did what like Lauren was feeding you, did that influence to influence any thinking to update puzzles or redesign any of the objects within it. Yeah, so Lauren's player journey is absolutely brilliant. Like when I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm so glad that I asked you to work on this project because like this is exactly the kind of questions that we should be asking at every turn. Um, and having also been very fresh on just playing the game, it was nice to be able to bounce off a lot of puzzle ideas uh, with Lauren as well, because there were certain things that I was already thinking of adjusting and making changes to. So it was nice to have a bit of a sounding board for that. And I would say it's probably about 85% the same as the Taylor board. And in the sense that the puzzles, if you, if you played this now, after having played Tale of Ward, let's say five years ago, you might mm -hmm. not remember exactly how things were solved and you probably won't remember the exact solutions, but when you're doing it, you would probably think, ah, yes, I kind of remember these steps. So there are a handful of puzzles that uh, were changed, smoothed out, perhaps had elements 
moved if they were too rocky. And by that, I mean, I've gotten feedback from people who had trouble with certain elements of puzzles because Tale of Ward having been, well, it was my first game. It was a very ambitious game <laughs> that took people like anywhere, you know, around f at least like 15 hours to play. So, I mean, over several sessions, right? So playtesting it was challenging. And as a result, it didn't get playtested quite enough as, uh, as much as I would want to do now, being like more experienced. Mm -hmm. um, at the time, I still, you know, I thought, well, it's it's a challenging game. People can solve it. They have hints if they need. Like, this is just the game now. But after having so many more people play through it and actually give me their feedback, I was able to find like the other pain points that I may have missed in the process originally, and also uh, as we tightened the narrative with the puzzles and sort of uh, fixed any like plot holes that existed in the first <laughs> one uh, or not necessarily plot holes per se but like what we would call escape room logic is like why is this here well it's because it's a game so you know try, there's a padlock on this fridge because that's an important part of home security right right um, who needs free access to their yogurt? But, <laughs> uh, so, so there were things that I already knew I needed to add better signposting to. There were certain things that just felt like maybe there's too many steps in this. It's too complex. Like I can take out this extra thing. Um, and then there were just certain areas where it was like, okay, we're changing the narrative slightly. It's going to make more sense if I change the wording to this. Um, and Lauren actually came up with text for one of the most challenging puzzles in the game, which was in the form of uh, a greeting card poem and a set of rose petals. Oh boy! And, yeah. Uh -huh. uh, this in in playtesting Threads of Fate, <laughs> it went. I mean, it's still a challenging puzzle, but that playtesting went so much better than trying to playtest it the first time around. And it was just from adding more signposts and kind of combining clues from from both of us into the text uh, because she came up with a couple versions i had some particular wording that i wanted to use and i mashed everything together into a poem that made sense and then people actually <laughs> solved it without needing any help and it was like i was like oh this is what was supposed to happen <laughs> Uh, is this was this news to you, Lauren? Because I, I see uh, you're 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 laughing and smiling. Was that is that this news to you, or is that your recollection as well? I know that I the reason I had kind of preemptively offered like, what if the poem were like this? Is I struggled with that puzzle so much, yeah. so I'm I'm excited that um, that people are able to figure it out now. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I'm going to talk this because this puzzle is quite fascinating because it's it's. It's early in the game. I, if, if it's in four envelopes, I think that's safe to say the person opens the box, they'll see that immediately. And that's not necessarily a spoiler, but it's kind of fascinating that um, it's also a very it, this that puzzle teaches the player or their or this the player's group about things to come. I think in regards to how this experience, how Threads of Fate is going to work moving forward past that second envelope and 
being very coy about it, but I, I, I think that's, that's very interesting to hear the, the, the work done to it because once I solved that puzzle and understood in regards to, let's just say everything is in play in regards to the contents of the box and how it needs to work together, that really helped clue me in for things to come and to prepare myself and to be mindful. And I think that's kind of fascinating to learn that you both uh, did it and you collaborated together to heighten this experience even more. And to me, it sounds like it sounds like you guys have a pretty great collaborative experience. You seem to be working very well together because I do know that Post Curious is already working on a new project and it's called the Morrison Game Factory, which this is actually a little bit more your project, Lauren, if you want to talk a little bit about what this is and because it's it's coming to Kickstarter very soon. Uh, I don't want to put a date on the podcast here yet, but we'll we'll make Noah in the post credits if it's a little closer. Probably to. October. Okay, October. So we'll we'll follow the socials, people. We'll drop those here shortly. But I would love to hear a little bit about what this is and what what's going on. Um, yeah, so it was 2020. I was going a little stir crazy. Um, I, and I was dealing with quite a lot of loneliness. Um, and I designed, I signed up for this secret Santa puzzle exchange. And we were, the goal was you're going to design your own narrative puzzle game and you're going to send it to someone else and they're going to design it their own game and send it to you. Um, And so I was assigned um, Jillian Raymond and I knew (laughs) that she was going to go all out. And she kept on like posting like little sneak peeks of like the calligraphy and like the delicate aged paper. And I was like, Oh, she is. Oh, wow. I need to, I need to really, really invest my all into this. So um, I, I designed a game that had a bunch of um, a bunch of components that I could, I was actually in Vancouver at the time. So I was thinking about like, okay, what, once I get back home, can I, what can I design here and order it so that I can get back home, package it all together, test it and get it out to her quickly because there was going to be a bit of a time crunch. So I was looking up printing services, basically seeing what they could do that I could have like designs sent to them and get it, get it shipped in time. So it was, that's how I kind of came up with the conceit, looking up like custom made, blah, 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 and finding out what could be custom made. Um, and the answer is like, I won't, it quickly became, okay, I'm going to tell a story that takes place in a type of factory. And mm-hmm. I want that factory to produce fun, colorful things. And then I can have custom made fun, colorful things sent and it'll create a sense of fun and companionship in these dark times. Um, And so eventually I decided on a board game factory because then you can order all sorts of colorful game pieces and you can design a game board and you can uh, design your own custom playing cards. Um, So I, uh, yeah, that's how it all began. Um, I, the concept of the story, I'm not sure how much I should get into. We hadn't talked yet about how spoilery <laughs> I should be, but it is a story about loneliness 
and about using um, these types of components to reach out to others, to, to reach out to strangers and uh, hoping that one day you can reconnect again. So very much a product of the pandemic. Sure. But I, I will say, cause I was kind of curious in regards to with, with all of your experience uh, in doing television and writing episodes why why tell why do this as an at-home box experience but it sounds like in many ways it, this comes from a very deep emotional place to engage with someone in a tactile sense yeah uh, to really give them something like beyond just um a story that can move them or engage them or make them think but for them to literally be like give them something to brighten their day. It sounds like I'm right. I I can just imagine opening this and seeing color everywhere already. Right. There's something, I don't know. There's just something about interactive narrative that makes you feel an unprecedented amount of agency in a time when (laughs) you don't feel like you have a lot of agency. You feel helpless. Um, I, realizing actually that I should have mentioned that. And when we were talking about threads of faith, that that was like the final lens that I used when I was revising, thinking about how to move, how to move as much as possible into the present tense, as opposed to it being the player catching up on something that had been solved already so that they could feel like, Oh, I am truly making a difference. I'm figuring out something that they were struggling with or that they didn't have before. Um, And I think that was a big part of this game too, feeling like I'm helping someone I'm making a difference in someone's life potentially. Um, I I feel like I don't know what's going on outside in the world, and I don't know what I can do about it. But I, I can uh, I can reach out and connect and solve something in a way that will result in a happy outcome and potentially uh, personal connection. So that was why it really made the best. That was the best avenue for it. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think that's really kind of very thoughtful. I think I think that's kind of the interesting thread that I'm pulling out of our conversation today amongst the three of us is the intentionality of what Post Curious is doing in regards to the the player's experience before, during, and after, and what they're doing even in the the between times. And I think that's kind of what's really fascinating to hear from both of you is, is thinking about the player's mindset in regards to how they approach this work and things and stuff like that. And I'm, it just makes me very excited. And now I can't wait for October to get here <laughs> pretty much. Um, This has been a really fantastic conversation. I'm so Honored and thrilled you were both able to sit down and talk with me. But if people want to follow uh, along in regards to Post Curious in particular, but also both of you, how can they do that? Rita, uh, how is it best for people to start following along and maybe pick up some of these, uh, the catalog of Post Curious? So one great way is to sign up for our monthly newsletter. 
uh, at postcurious.com. If you go all the way down to the bottom of the page, uh, send out monthly updates, but also recommendations for other games and other puzzly or immersive things that are on our radar. So we like to share that with everybody else and support other creators. Uh, you can also just follow us at postcurious on Instagram and at getpostcurious on Twitter. Fantastic. Uh, Lauren, if people want to maybe follow along and uh, get try to get the inside scoop of how the Morrison Game Factory is coming along uh, or your thoughts and feelings currently, how would they do that? I, I don't know. I don't have a website or a blog. I guess they could follow me on Instagram. It's um, at D-A-E-L-A. Cool. Awesome. Uh, Rita, Lauren, Thank you so much for taking the time and I look forward to the things that come with Post Curious. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Rita and Lauren for being our guests this week and to Patrick for jumping into the host's chair and taking care of it because he's the one who he's the one who played Threads of Fate. So uh, he was he's much like last week when we had Parker, uh, who was talking with Eric Garcia of uh, We Build Houses uh here uh the uh it makes sense to have the person who's you know done the thing do the interview so um which which brings us to next week and the inverse of that from a certain point of view uh next week once again i am not going to be the host of the show because uh i'm going to be a guest on the show uh michael tara garver who is well known to many of us here in the immersive community and who had the distinction of being uh i I will not get this title right maybe it's ingrained in me director of live experience for star wars galactic star cruiser is going to be our host next week because michael is going to be interviewing myself nick fortuno graham wetterhan jessica crean and Catherine Yu making her return to the podcast about our experience on the show that Michael directed. It is a two hour long episode. <laughs> okay. It is a two hour and 17 minute long episode. <laughs> we could have gone much longer. Uh, that dives into not only some of what LARPers would call war stories about what we did, uh, but also about our uh, some of our analysis of the show and what the experience was like. And it was really interesting having Michael guide us through that process to see what Michael was interested in and wondering what hit and what didn't. Yeah, it's this total inversion. Uh, and I think probably not the last time we do a kind of total inversion here on the show. Um, look, uh, this is episode 398. Next week is episode 399. We're going to do uh, a uh, a, 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 I almost called it a talk explode. That's some, that's someone else's show. Uh, we're going to do, we're going to do a, a team speak episode for episode 400. We always do one for the anniversary. Might grab some other friends just you know, get some jawing going on. Um, I've been doing this a very long time now. 400 is a lot of episodes. And so I'm just really interested in like what other ways we've been holding this conversation. Um, and that means sometimes it's, 
other members of the team being the host while I'm engineering. Uh, sometimes it means uh, just completely throwing the playbook out and uh, coming up with a new way. So uh, don't expect the 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 unexpected because <laughs> I can't promise anything. But uh, never be surprised if we just invert the format like we're doing this time, uh, particularly when there's something uh, special that we want to kind of dive into in a deep way. And there's a lot of people I'm having some really great conversations with late and we want to get those in here. Just some really, just today, there was a basically a conversation I had with someone that was like, that probably should have been an episode of the podcast. So we'll try and recreate that conversation as best we can. Um, and also I am just over the moon with my birthmates uh, for, uh, for the Star Cruiser. So I just, I, it was really great spending time with them this week. And, it was really great that Patrick took on this episode. Uh, it also afforded me the ability to do all of that and and all the other stuff that's coming forward. So, um, let's see what else. What else is there? I think I promised last time, like a little bit. You know what? Mm, you know what? No, no, no. In episode four hundred, I'll tell you a few of the things that are coming up. Some of those opportunities I hinted at. Um, uh, I know of late. Um, with with all the way that the entertainment industry is going and all the uncertainty and everything um, and with the Burnt City closing, with Star Cruiser closing, um, just a lot of a lot of folks feeling down uh, and kind of unsure. But I am weirdly having the exact opposite experience right now. Uh, and hopefully that just means it's a sign that, you know, I'm on, I'm on the part of the wave that's going to hit everybody else soon. Um, cause that's sort of my job is to, to be out there surfing. Uh, and, and things are getting, things are getting wild and woolly. You know, I'm having to learn LinkedIn deeper than I ever thought I'd have to. Um, there's threads now, you know, I, I am the social media manager for all this stuff and it's just keeping us hopping, keeping us hopping. And there's, there's all new skill sets that I have to learn pretty soon. I'll tell you about those in 400. Uh, and it's, it, but it's getting me excited about the potential and the possibility for this work. And the, the, the two op-eds we've done, uh, that I've done in the past few weeks, uh, are, are really just trying to wrestle with some of the bigger issues we have, or that are, that are not just on the horizon, but that are here and sniffing around our field and you just take them head on. So I encourage you to take a look at those. Uh, I do a lot better job writing than I do rambling, at least this time or these past two times. And uh, I think it uh, will will help you see uh, not only how I'm seeing things, but hopefully help you see things in some new light and see some of the potentials and possibilities in our field. Um, through them. And there's, there's, there's just a lot. There's all, there's so much that's been done in the past few years. And it really feels right now, like this is the perfect time for us to be taking the learnings and applying them to what's next. What's next for us, of course, is that two, two hour and 17 minute long. I think that's right. Two seventeen, two fourteen. Okay. Uh, two hour and 14 minute long interview. Um, I mean, I'll have stuff on either side of it, right? <laughs> Not too much though. Uh, that's what's immediately up next. And of course, 
uh, a normal publishing week next week because we uh, will not have had a holiday here in the United States. So uh, there'll be more than three days of, of a work week. So there you go. All right. I hope you have a most excellent weekend. And with that, the associate producer of this show is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast. Special thanks to Shivana Lachlan for voicing our intro. The No Pro Podcast is written, edited, hosted, pro- not this time, written, edited, produced, and mixed by yours truly. I did do those things this time. I'm Noah Nelson. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. 